As I was preparing for this, this message, I, I read an account of something that happened many years ago. It was in the time when D.L. Moody uh, was uh, in Chicago, and he was an evangelist in the Chicago area. And apparently some ministers were discussing the possibility of having D.L. Moody come to their city for an uh, evangelistic crusade. And one of the ministers discussing this said, why Moody? Does Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? There was a quite a long, silent pause. And then one of the ministers spoke up and they said, no, Mr. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does have a monopoly on D.L. Moody. The one thing that makes the book of Acts and the, and the church age so dramatic and and uh, dynamic is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, who is the third member of the Holy Trinity. He actually dominates the book of Acts and has a monopoly on everything happening in the book. At the beginning of the book of Acts, which is, um, uh, which is the, the book of the Bible that introduces us to the church age, we come face to face with the theological truth that nothing can be accomplished with us or through us without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you see, is a critical agent of this whole uh, church age program of God. The power that we need to accomplish God's will in our individual lives and in the life of a church is the power of the Holy Spirit. And this clearly is what Jesus Christ himself revealed to his own apostles in his final message to them. They could do nothing until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to point out that that verb baptism that we find in chapter 1, verse 5, is a Greek word, baptizo, and it's a passive verb. It, what it actually means is that the apostles would passively be the recipient of an action that was, uh, and not the cause or source of that action. In some ways, we see this played out in believer's baptism. Uh, those desiring to be baptized are the ones, uh, aren't the ones doing the immersion. They're instead being the recipients of that. And so those who suggest that you need to beg or plead for the baptism of the Holy Spirit have never really studied the written word of God to understand what true spiritual baptism is. You and I need to understand this if we are properly to re relate to the Holy Spirit because without him we will accomplish nothing for God. On the other hand, if we are proper relating to the Holy Spirit, we will accomplish everything that God wants us to accomplish. And so what exactly does a true spirit-filled person and to the next extent, a true spirit-filled church look like? I'm sure if you ask this question to different churches and, and different Christians, you'll get a whole myriad of different answers. Westminster uh, Seminary professor, Dr. Dennis Johnson writes this, and I quote, enthusiasm can be manipulated. Liturgy can be mechanical. The meditation can be 
self-absorbed rather than Christ-centered. How then can we filter out the static of the counterfeit in order to recognize the real signs of the Spirit's presence? End quote. It's a good question. Not surprisingly, we find that God's Word gives us the answer to that question. In summary, a Spirit-filled church, a Spirit-filled believer seeks to walk in obedience and carry out the mission that has, they have been given. You need to understand this, that every true believer in Jesus Christ has been baptized by the Holy Spirit at conversion. You have been immersed with Christ. But not, not every believer and every local church properly demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. The main thing that should be true in every Christian believer's life and the main thing that should be true in the life of the church as a body of Christ is that we seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and that we set our minds on things above, not things on this earth. Again, the reason for this imperative in life is that every Christian and every church as a body would understand that we have everything in Christ who has died, been raised, and shall appear in glory. Once you become a believer in Christ, your relationship to this world radically changes. You no longer are just mere citizens of this world. Your, citizen, uh, your citizenship, as the Word of God tells us, is in heaven. You're basically dead to this world. You're dead to the things of this world. And in baptism, we are put under, that is, in the, into the grave. We die, and then we rise again. And that's that picture of water baptism. And that's all that is. That is a picture, and that is a profession of faith, saying that is what has happened. But there are so many things in this dead world that get our attention. Dead philosophies, dead religions. We are to be dead to those things. We are to be dead to material things of this world. And actually, we need to be dead to self. You see, all of these things are passing away. All the things in this world will, will burn up with fervent heat at the, end, at the last day. Only your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the things that pertain to the fact that your life is hidden in Christ will last for eternity. And so those things must be the primary focus of the life and thinking and witness of a Christian, but also of the church of Jesus Christ. We see this illustrated many times throughout the Word of God. Isaiah, for example, was taken in the, to the very throne room of God in heaven. And we saw that as we are studying the holiness of God. We see where Isaiah in chapter 6 is entering the throne room of God. 
Isaiah was shown the absolute holiness of God. Do you know what happened when Isaiah was shown that? Isaiah immediately was shown his absolute depravity. Isaiah was shown that the only authority and only power that could enable his prophetic ministry as a spokesman for the Lord was the enabling empowerment of heaven. We see this also in the Gospels with John the Baptist. The Jewish religious leaders who had replaced the true worship of God with a religion of man-made regulations and of self-righteousness questioned John the Baptist's authority to call people to repent and, and prepare for the coming of our Lord. In John chapter 3, we see John the Baptist declare to them that his power, his authority were from heaven. John openly declared to them that he was not the Christ. He was a forerunner of the Christ. And that he spoke the truth, which comes from the source of truth, the only seat of truth, and that is the abode of God in heaven. And he proclaimed Jesus Christ as the truth. The Apostle John, the writer of the gospel account, he proclaimed Jesus Christ is logos. It means the word of God. The principle of divine reason and creative order. The second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus Christ. He's the one who is the embodiment of all truth. And so, Isaiah's thinking and orientation were directed toward heaven. John the Baptist's thinking and orientation were focused in heaven. And the Apostle John and all the other gospel writers, they wrote down the record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ by the inspired uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they then had their mind set upon the, the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not on things of the earth. And so with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Acts chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who, said, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Here we see that Jesus had told his disciples that they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they responded to him by asking him a question. I want you to notice that they identified Jesus as Lord. They believed that he was truly God, the second member of the Trinity. And the question they asked was very contextually normal and very logical. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is discussed in the context of John's baptism and and John had gone to Israel and told the nation, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. These apostles have been told to wait in Jerusalem and over and over again in Scripture, it reveals that God does have a, a kingdom program for Israel. That one day, Jerusalem will be exalt, the exalted capital of the world. Since all the, these apostles are Jewish, that was their response, and it's quite natural for them to think that way. And so in verse 6, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right there. Lord, are you. There is position and there is authority. You see, these Jewish apostles wanted Jesus to answer the question of whether or not the spirit baptism would mean that at this time of na- there would be national restoration and that God would establish Israel's kingdom here on earth. And again, by using that pronoun you, these apostles believe that Jesus is the one who has the authority to establish Israel's kingdom on earth. Remember, they're sitting there talking to Jesus Christ who was crucified, died, and was risen. They saw that he had power from heaven. And so these apostles clearly believe Jesus is the Messiah who can set up the kingdom for Israel. And they wanted to know if he was going to do this soon. And so these Jewish apostles were in Jerusalem and they were thinking about the kingdom of Israel. These apostles were not originally focused on the question about the church because the church, quite frankly, had not been born yet. We see that in Acts chapter 2. They weren't originally focused on the question about spirit, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They weren't originally focused on question about witnessing. They were thinking about future national restoration of Israel and her kingdom. In view of the fact that spiritual baptism would occur soon, the apostles wondered about Israel's kingdom. They were, they were sort of probably thinking something like this. If, if the Spirit baptism you talk about will happen soon, and this new kingdom of of God in the church age is about to be instituted, instituted, then how about Israel's kingdom on earth? When will that happen also? Well, folks, 
This is the reality that is missing from so much of the church today. There are those seated in services of nominally evangelical churches in our time who are rarely reminded that they are living temples of the Holy Spirit of God. That's a tragic fact. Because they think that it's all about entertainment and marketing. They think that it's all about their efforts to build this visible church, bringing people in the door, but not bringing people to Christ. This whole idea of seeker-friendly, no one seeks after God, no, not one. There is one seeker, and that is God. But more and more, we see these, these nominally evangelical church services that are filled with people that are, not, that are not worshipers of God. They are in need of salvation. These services are filled with people who have been made to think that they are Christians, but they're not. Because they do not truly have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because they are not saved. That sounds harsh, folks, but that is the point. The body of Christ, the the bride of Christ is for believers. It's not to say it's wrong for an unbeliever to be, be here. But this is not for people to bring unbelievers in to be, to be evangelized. That is our, our deal. That is what our job is, is to bring these people in because we have witnessed to them, because we have told them the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the place where we come together with the body of, of Christ, with the bride of Christ as his church, as his people. But instead, what happens is these people find their hope in some geopolitical nation of Israel instead of finding spiritual kingdom of Christ in the church. These people are, are thinking in an earthbound way. And it's essentially the same way that people are talking outside the church. They think that it's all natural man that's going to bring about all the changes in this world. But you see, the unsaved man doesn't re, uh, receive the things of the Spirit of God because they cannot. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. To these, the unbelieving world, it's foolishness. These unbelievers don't, are not led by the Spirit. And so they come into the church and say, oh, what, what do we need to do? How are we going to make this all change? And so we have all these people and for multiple generations that come into the church and even church leadership. Most churches choose church leadership not by biblical qualification, but because of their position in society. It might be that you have the CPA or whatever is biblically qualified. But a lot of times it's only because what they hold the position they hold out in the community. And many of these people have not never been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so you have all these churches 
especially in the, the 20th century, that had become spiritually cold, spiritually dead. They become totally earthbound in their thinking. It's because these 20th century churches became rooted and grounded not in Christ, not in his word, but in the thinking and philosophies of this world. The heaven-bound orientation was gone. In fact, much of the church today, we see this for the same thing. But notice this. We see this in the first chapter of Acts as well. Many, in many, many cases, we see that there is an, ab, an ab adaptation and orientation toward finding political solutions, an orientation toward changing the situation which fallen man finds himself, and rather than seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to radically change a person, a lot of times they find worldly ways to make this present life more a more comfortable life and this present world a more comfortable place to live. Preacher C.T. Studd, he was born in 1860. He once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There seems to be little recognition in much of the evangelical church today of this momentous fact that this earth is perishing, that this earth is under God's church, that this earth will be destroyed. And the only thing that uh, pertain to life is hidden in Christ. And those things are the only things that will last. Luke records Christ's response to his apostles in uh, question in verses 7 and 8. And there we read, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, end of the earth. Basically, Jesus is saying, the time when God will restore the kingdom, Israel's kingdom, is my business, not yours. This is a good point to remember as we're in church age work. We have a job to do. We need to stay focused on the job. We need not to be caught up in the program of God, which is none of our business. Dates that God will do things is none of our business. And notice carefully that, that Jesus does not deny Israel having a kingdom. He just says, the time for all this is not yours to know. This is the church age. And this is not the time to focus on Israel's kingdom. But again... There are so many nominal evangelicals walking around 
reclaiming the country for Jesus, reclaiming the culture for Jesus, reclaiming science for Jesus, reclaiming the arts for Jesus, reclaiming government for Jesus. If only we could reclaim these things, they say, the world would be much better. The church would have greater influence. And so do you know what happens with that thinking? That thinking is, how can the church have greater influence? Well, what about if a a really good sports figure who is really popular makes a profession of faith? What about an actor who makes, just think of what would happen in the church. Think of how people would listen to that person. Tell you what, our Lord and Savior, he came with words. He had power and authority. If we think that some person, because of their position, is going to bring a better message than Jesus Christ, we're off track. For us to sit there and think that if only, if only this person will come, the influence would be great. Guess what? He's chosen to use rubes like you and me. Those people that are simple to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And guess what? By the power of the Spirit, it will have effectual impact. You know, I hope that you don't think that if the right person were to speak up, that this would have an impact of the world. And if it is, understand that that's contrary to the Word of God. But this is the attitude that's been being taught in so many of the churches and so many Christian institutions today. But it just reveals a tragic in, uh, ignorance of the Word of God. And it does that on several key areas. First of all, this is earthbound mentality of improving on this present world. That re- reveals a tragic ignorance within the church of all the fact that all these things are under the authority of Christ now. He has all of power and authority now. Colossians 2.15 tells us Jesus Christ, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Do we believe that or not? He's the one who disarmed principalities and powers at the cross. These are the things that are now under his authority. Just as those people who put him to death are under his authority. But the modern church's earthbound mentality shows an ignorance of the fact that this pattern of Christ is revealed in Scripture. That this pattern is not about the upward progress of man, 
but it is the downward progress of this earth and this world system toward judgment and destruction. Human government, human efforts have failed. They will always continue to fail. They will fail until the curse of sin is removed forever. Human culture has failed. It will continue to fail until the, this curse of sin is removed forever. And in verse 7, God reveals that he, he controls time. And he knows everything. He knows the time in which it will happen because he has set the appointed time. And these things he will do by his own personal power and authority. God does what he wants when he wants. And it is our job not to spend our, quest our lives questioning God. Now, the apostles had still this cherished they had still cherished the hope that they themselves would not have to do anything dangerous or difficult to promote the kingdom of the Savior. They dreamed of a restoration of Israel so that they could sit upon the thrones uh, next to his throne and that he would immediately judge the enemies of Israel and set up this eternal kingdom right there then and there. But this is not what the Father intended. And I hope you see this very cl clear and plain, that it takes the power of the Holy Spirit, and especially in, in effective witness. It takes more than just our natural abilities become a witness to the Lord. Even if you have the gift of preaching and teaching, you have been given light, but that light can't do anything if it's placed under a bushel basket. It has to be set up upon a lampstand so that it gives light all around. Folks, you've been given the Spirit if you are a true Christian. But you still need the manifestation of His power to become light to others. Even as Christ was sent by the Father into this fallen world of sin and misery, so Christ sent the apostles Christ was full of the Holy Spirit and power. This is what enabled him to fulfill the mission which he came to do. He was sent in the power of the Spirit. And so he spiritually sends us. But we need to be clothed with that in order to see anything done that would really promote his kingdom and his glory. All power that we might have to be and to become a witness comes from Him. He gives the power to fulfill the purpose and salvation of people's souls. I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And there, starting with verse 5, it says, now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob 
and restore the preserved one of Israel. Listen to this. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the end of the earth. Instead of going out with the message of bringing God to his created people, Israel decided they would just clam up. They would start to be self-righteous. Well, we're the chosen of God. We're not going to take the message of God to, to pagans. We're not going to go to these Gentiles. These people were just the logs of, uh, for the fire of hell. But these verses are referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come uh, become the Savior to both Jew and Gentile. He would be a light to them both. And so he says to these, these men, but you go to the ends of the earth. If you please turn to Acts chapter 13. Verses 1 through 4. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mayon, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, look at this. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You see, it was the Holy Spirit who called these men to their work in missions. It was the Lord who set them apart to it. They knew the Great Commission was a commandment from the Lord. But they also know that if the Holy Spirit sent them on this mission, that he would be with them in it in a special way to bring about results, make their, their work effectual. All of you who are Christians, who want to become better witnesses, you need to take note of this. You've been given the Great Commission. And yet it takes more then you're going about to fulfill it in the power of your own determination. In order to see results for good and for God's glory, it will take the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is critical to effective kingdom work. To do God's work, we must have God's power. The most important thing that I need and you need and the whole church needs is to be in a proper relationship with the Holy Spirit so that he may release his full dynamic kingdom power through us in all these various geographic locations. Now in the Greek it says, you will be my witnesses. The point 
of the grammar in God's people are Christ is Christ's witness. There is no other witness. That's the point that he's making here. You are my witnesses. There are no other legitimate witnesses. Unless you are endued with the Holy Spirit, you are not the witness of Christ. But he says, I have led you in power of the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. I want to ask, when was the last time that you were so dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit that you were led into a witnessing situation to where you shared Jesus Christ? Sometimes it's hard. It's hard, folks, because of what people will think of you. But we are the witnesses. We're it. That's one thing worth praying for, is God's Spirit to direct us to the people who need to have Christ shared. And for centuries in the church, most of the mission agencies recognized Acts 1.8 as their Great Commission passage, where Jesus Christ gives his assignment uh, assignment orders to the church and to take the gospel to the four main geographic locations. Verse 8 says that these apostles were to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem. You think you have it hard? Jerusalem was a city that had no friend to these apostles and certainly had no friend to their Savior. Jerusalem was not a hometown of any of these apostles and it was actually a place that opposed them. It opposed their teaching, and it actually crucified their Lord. And I, f- I find it amazing that Jesus tells the apostles that that's the place where they will have power of the Holy Spirit in order to witness for him. It'll be in Jerusalem. I love what uh, one Bible commentator, uh, Everett Harrison, says. He says the Lord purposed to have his first fruits on the very soil that drank his lifeblood. The second area that we see for these apostles to go is to all Judea. You have to remember that these apostles are all from Galilee, not Judea. The only apostle that was from a city in in Judea was Judas Iscariot. Judea was not a friendly place to Jesus Christ and wasn't a friendly place to his apostles. So the charge here is that when you have the Holy Spirit's power, you are able to be his witness in these kind of places. And that the point of all this is that they were totally against them. We go into places that may be totally against you and me. But then it says that we are uh, that the apostles were to be God's witnesses in all Samaria. Now, typically, Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samarians. You see that in, in John four nine, because there were a bunch of half breeds and and they weren't pure bloods. In fact, when these apostles saw Jesus spoke, uh, speaking to the Samaritan woman in John four twenty seven, they wondered why he was even speaking to her. 
You can imagine what have gone through all the apostles' minds. When Jesus says, you will have a responsibility to be my witnesses in every inch of Samaria. Yes, you're going to go to the half-breeds. You're going to go to these people who are not purebloods. The final geographic place where the apostles were to be God's witnesses is to the whole world. And in this new church age, this was certainly going to be different. They were to move out from Jerusalem to the world. I hope you understand what's being said. When God's Spirit is in you and upon you, you will have the power to witness in some of the most despicable places and to the most despicable people. When you are in tune with the Holy Spirit, you will desire to reach out to these places and these people that haven't really been nice to you. Those missionaries who want to use Acts 1.8 to do the mission work so they can go into some remote place in the world ought to be challenged at first to be witnesses of those people who have made their lives miserable. Think about all the people that you have right next to you. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the world, then you certainly should be able to take it to those who are around you right here and right now. If a person can't witness where they presently are geographically, I really doubt they'll have any, any change when you change their uh, uh, geographic situation. You first need to be witnesses on your job and in your school to your neighbors. Then go out into the world. I love something that uh, Dr. Uh, Aver Powell says. He says, first, you must tell the story to those who immediately are around you, and that place is often the most arduous mission field. However, if the um, ambitious would be, uh, would be missionary for any reason shall fail at home, where the uh, reception might be cold or even hostile, he would have little chance of success overseas, end quote. I think that's absolutely true. Because you see, the idea that we are witnesses for Christ occurs 39 times in the book of Acts. The job of these apostles and our job is to realize that we are witnesses, but without the Spirit's power, we will fall flat on our face. James Montgomery Boyce said that at one time, he studied all of the uh, context and all 14 passages where the, the statement filled with the Holy Spirit is found in the book of Acts. And he concluded that in every instance where people were actually filled with the Holy Spirit, they were involved in powerful witnessing for Jesus Christ. So here's the chronology of how this all works. It's power first, witness second. Too many churches end up having People who come supposedly to Christ and the first thing they want them to do is go out and speak about something they have no idea about. Need to be trained and then sent out. And if you don't have the stomach for training, you're going to go out 
into the world thinking that you're all that in a bag of chips and that you have the power within yourself to do it. We can inadvertently send out people who are looking for self-righteousness. They need to be able to take time to learn and grow in the Word of God. Looking back in church history, I think you've all known about the reformer, Martin Luther. Well, Martin Luther had a, a contemporary that was a Dutch Roman Catholic monk. His name was Erasmus. Erasmus first stated his position on man's freedom in his working uh, that supported synergism. Synergism, when related to this, is that God plus man equals salvation. He wrote this in a book entitled The Freedom of the Will. One of Erasmus' main, argument and, main arguments in the defense of the law and the teaching of synergism was that the law was given by God to Israel, and he stated that the law would not have been given if it were not able to be uh, obeyed. And he uses this fallible uh, precept to attempt to prove an invalid point, that man is totally free with the will, the capacity and the ability to initiate the new birth process. Because Erasmus' view of the fall of Adam was that Adam was only wounded spiritually by the fall and that we are only spiritually wounded by the fall but still capable and required of our own free will to come to Christ. And he says the law proves that. Luther, in response, says, Oh, Erasmus, you repeatedly say, if we can do nothing. What is the purpose of the law, precepts, threats, and promises? The answer is very simple, Erasmus. The law was not given to show us what we can do. The law's purpose is to show what sin is and what leads, us, uh, what leads to death, hell, and the wrath of God. The law can only point these things out. It cannot free us from them. Deliverance comes only through Jesus Christ revealed to us in the gospel. Neither reason nor free will can lead men to Christ. For reason and free will themselves need the light of the law to show their own sickness, end quote. You see, Luther was monergistic. God alone in salvation. And Luther wrote about that in Bondage of the Will. He says the natural man is referring to the unregenerate person who lacks supernatural life and wisdom because they are spiritually dead and they are unable to understand or comprehend the spiritual truths of the grace of God. And therefore they are foolishness to the unregenerate. Without the monergistic work of regeneration, it is even impossible for faith. One must understand in order to truly believe. John Calvin wrote, and I quote, And hereby does he, Christ, briefly set down the end of the doctrine of the gospel, 
namely that God may reign in us. Regeneration is the beginning of this kingdom, and the end, therefore, is blessed immortality. But we must first note that we are born and that we live aliens and strangers from the kingdom of God until such time as God does fashion us again unto new life, end quote. So back to our text, we see that Luke, he could have just stopped where he was. He could have stopped with revealing the need for spiritual power, but we're confronted with the purpose of the delay in the eschatological fulfillment. God's plan and purpose are for the growth of the kingdom and the development of his disciples in this real world, real time acquisition of trust and expression of faithful deeds. There's this lag between what they heard and how they lived it out. And so continuing with verse 9, Luke records Christ's ascension. And there we read, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. At the conclusion of Jesus' final promise and challenge, they were evidently standing there flat-footed, caught up in the spectacle, this inspiring vision of Jesus' departure. He was lifted up in this glory cloud of God, the Shekinah, and left their sight. Several of them had seen his glory, all the witnesses of his resurrection, his resurrected body, now witnesses of the ultimate vindication of his glory. So did the disciples understand what they were witnessing? Did they understand the moment that, uh, of Christ's exaltation to the Father's right hand? The moment he was, uh, was given his kingdom? The moment that he did his mediatorial reign? Luke wants us to remember the departure in the transfiguration where there was Moses and Elijah. And he wants us to see this correlation of what's happening here. This is an intentional transition, a purposeful portrayal. These apostles all stood in awe as they watched Jesus ascending to the sky in this Shekinah glory cloud. Daniel saw that in Daniel 7.13. There it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So continuing with verse 10 of our text, it says, And while, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. It says here that they looked steadfastly. That, um, that the word uh, steadfastly is atinenzomai, and it means to fix one's mind eye or one's, one's gaze. 
Have you ever sort of stared at something, and as you're staring in, in wonder, you sort of get lost in yourself? You sort of forget everything that's going on around you? This is what happened to the disciples. They, they were standing there staring at this in just amazement. And then they realized there were two men standing there. It, it, it's sort of like if you go to a going away party and the person is leaving and you don't know when or if you'll see them again, you sort of stand there dazed. And then as you're doing that, all of a sudden, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were there. Where'd you come from? Well, that's exactly what happens. And, and here it says that there were two men that were standing beside them. And the Greek word for men is the, the word anar, and it's a specific gender-oriented. It, it's, it's that they were, were men standing there. But it says that they were in white apparel, and that, that word there for, for white apparel is lukos, and it means brilliant. It, it's dazzling white. It's the garment of angels, of the exalted uh, splendor of the heavenly state. And so what all this means is that there were two men who had characteristics of a masculine look as opposed to a feminine look. They were standing there in heavenly splendor. And why were they there? Well, we read in verse 11 that they were redirecting their focus. The focus from earthly things to heavenly things. There it says, who said, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you in heaven, into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the wonder that gripped the moment of these disciples, they were standing there watching, and we don't know how long it was. They were just sitting there going, oh my goodness. And it was long enough for the angel, uh, the Lord to send a couple angels to move them along the path of, fa of faithfulness. And the angels bring these men back to together. Hey, you know what? You're seeing something heavenly. Let's, let's uh, talk about what you have to do on this earth to point to the heavenly. They reminded that your your roots are not here. They're in heaven. But you need to be in the world. You need to do what God has called you to do, and that's to be a witness to the one you just saw. And so this is an unstated message of transition. Men, men of Galilee, obey Christ. Now go. I want you to listen to what uh, Matthew Henry says about this verse. Uh, he says, and I quote, he calls them men, men of Galilee to put them in mind of the rock of, out of which they were hewn. Christ had put a great honor upon them in making them his ambassadors. But they must remember that they are men, earthly vessels, earthen vessels, and men of Galilee, illiterate men, looked upon with disdain. Now, 
say they, why stand here like Galileans, rude and unpolished men gazing up into heaven? What would you see? You have seen all that you were called together to see. And why do you look any further? Why stand gazing as men frightened and perplexed, as men astonished at their wit's end? Christ's disciples should never stand at a gaze because they have a sure rule to go by and a sure foundation to build upon, end quote. You see, the angels encourage these disciples with the promise that Jesus will return. He will return in like manner, but they will walk in his power and faithfulness to him until he comes back. And I think it's incredibly kind that the Lord actually sends these two angels to encourage these men at this moment because they were so dumbfounded and so undone who knows, they might have stared into heaven until they died. But the challenge from the angels indicates that it's not a mere lingering in worship and adoration. So what the angels did is, is, is sort of, we've, we've done this with little kids, give them a little pat on the behind and say, hey, there's, okay, enough done. You have a little bit more to do here. Let's get focused. And so the question was the, uh, then followed by the empowering affirmation of what they already knew to be true. And it's the foundation of their testimony of Jesus Christ. This Jesus who came, lived, died, rose, and ascended is a fulfillment of God's purpose and plans. This Jesus is not done yet with the gathering and building and growing of his kingdom. Yes, that kingdom you just asked about is being put together. This is Jesus who gave you this pattern and purpose of life and he's still at work in midst of, of us doing that work, calling people into his kingdom. Because peace, rest, hope, and eternal life is only found in his kingdom the same Jesus. Turn to Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord of all, both of heaven and earth. He is the ransomed, the, uh, the resurrected, the risen, the redeemer. He is the Christ. You see, it's not within yourself. It's not of your works or your righteousness. It's of his. And that's why his name shall be called Jesus. And he shall be, he shall save his people from their sins. Folks, how could we add anything to that? What nonsense to think that his effectual work needs our, uh, needs our work added Have you been made to know this truth? Are you still hoping that you're going to be good enough? Are you still hoping that 
well, there has to be something else. God has given you the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. But then he goes on to say in Galatians 5.4, you have become estranged from Christ who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So many, so many people need to know. So many churches teach this, it's all of, of you. And then they, they start predicting dates and times and they start looking for things that is none of their business. It's out of their lane. You know, even some blaspheme, blaspheme with saying, no man knows the day or the hour, but I can tell you the year and the month. Yeah, that's rubbish. Precisely when Jesus will return, like he went, is Jesus' work. We are not to stand around and be in the business of looking into the sky. Our business is to honor his closing instructions. He said, don't worry about the time. Worry about the power. Worry about the Spirit and the unrestricted witness that the Spirit gives you. Be sure Jesus will come back like he went up. And when he returns, he wants to see us doing what he has told us to do. He wants, us, uh, he wants to see us full of the Spirit, powerful for the kingdom, sharing, yeah, full first-hand knowledge of Jesus' work in our lives, our testimony of what he has done for us personally, but never think that your testimony is the gospel. I always let, say, you know what? Weave it together. Show what the gospel is and how that was effectually related to you and your life. That's how we as well can handle his de departure, but it's how we will also handle his return. We need to be ready because you and I don't know when, but we do know how. We need to seek to walk in the power of the Spirit, not in weakness not in fear. We need to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to call people to salvation in Him and let them know it's not in your power. It's not in my power. It's the power of Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that we get to live in this tension of doing our work and yet waiting for your return. Sometimes we're exhausted. Sometimes we trip and fall. Sometimes we actually get over our skis and ahead of ourselves. And we may even cause others to trip and fall and we, we repent of that, Lord. We ask that you would you would help us understand the grid of Scripture that we need to live on, the doctrine that is put before us. 
And we ask that you be patient with us, but that you would be our focal point. May we lift our heads up to not look to heaven, but to look to you as the sustainer of all, all things that you put before us. And that we would be mindful that is your agenda. That is the reason we are still in this world. Lord, we pray this in the most glorious and precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.